So it's a new year, 2024. Is there going to be a new you this year? Did you make any resolutions? Have you thought about what you just want to leave behind in 2023 and not bring with you into this new year? Have you thought about what you want to gain this year, by the end of this year? How, how do you, whether you make resolutions or not, how do you want to grow just as a human being this year? To be alive is to grow. Now, I know we, we stopped growing physically around the age of 25, though many of us managed to continue to expand, even if we're not growing. But growth is so much more than just stature, isn't it? Right? Growth is all about reaching our potential. Uh, it, it's about achieving kind of mastery over ourselves, over, over our environment, maybe, maybe our career. And from the moment we're born, we're, we're growing. In, in all of these different ways, we are growing toward maturity. That's, that's the goal. Now, now, do you ever really arrive at maturity? Yeah, okay, yes, physically. But in all those other more important ways, do you ever actually reach that goal of growth? toward maturity. I, I know that as I look at my own life, I am definitely more mature now than I was when I was in my 20s. And my wife is very thankful for that. But boy, when I look at my life, I see a lot of room for yet more growth when it comes to maturity. I bet you do too. Thus, we make resolutions. We set goals for ourselves to grow a bit more this year. Now, I wonder, do, do, do your aspirations for, for growth, whether you put it in the form of resolution or not, does that include spiritual growth? Well, if, if it does, and I hope it does, you're in the right place. Because we are starting a new series this morning in the book of James. James is actually uh, probably the earliest, if not the earliest, it's right there with one other book, uh, the earliest of the New Testament letters written probably no later than about 48 AD. And James wrote this letter because he wanted Christians to understand what does it look like to be a genuine Christian? Uh, what, 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 what does it look like to be the, the real thing? And according to James, a Christian's life should reflect the gospel. A Christian's life should look like Jesus. Uh, th thus, the title of this sermon series, Gospel Reflections. James, as we go through the book, is going to be holding up a mirror to our lives. And he's basically going to hold that mirror up and say, what do you see? Do you see the characteristics of a genuine, even mature faith in Jesus Christ? Or, or not? Maybe you don't see those things. Well, 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 if not, James doesn't want you to be discouraged. He, he doesn't, wanna dis, doesn't want you to despair. James 
is often referred to as the, the wisdom book of the New Testament. James has lots of practical wisdom to help us grow as Christians and to help us be confident that we actually are the real thing, the, the genuine article. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1071. 1071, James chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning, so we're not going to go very far. We're going to look at James 1 to 11, but let me just read the first verse uh, so I can kind of help orient us. James chapter 1, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. All right, this is a pretty standard introduction to a letter in the ancient world. It identifies the author, identifies the recipients. There's a greeting. He said, greetings. It's pretty short and simple. All right, so, so who is this James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we've only really got three options in the early church. Two of them were two of the original 12 disciples. The other, the third option, is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James, the brother of John, one of, the, one of the original 12 disciples, he was martyred in 44 AD, too early to have written this letter. The other disciple known as James, James, the son of Alphaeus, like we know nothing about him, like nothing about him, which means probably that very few other people did either. Uh, the, the church never ascribed this book to that James. He probably didn't have the name recognition more broadly speaking, to be able to just say James. And that, so that leaves us with the third option, which is what the church has always ascribed this letter to, James, the half-brother of Jesus. Well, why didn't James just say that? Why didn't he just identify himself? Well, I think it's important for us to see, before we go any further, that James is, is writing this book based on an authority that is not biological. This is not like nepotism. Yeah, Jesus was my half-brother, so you got to listen to me. No, no, not at all. No, James' authority in writing this letter is based on his spiritual relationship to Jesus, not his biological relationship to Jesus. It's, it's an apostolic authority, which is how he's referred to by Paul in Galatians chapter 1. James, we know was an eyewitness to the resurrection. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 15. That, that apparently is when he was converted. And, and so James writes this letter, not as the biological brother of Jesus, but as a servant, literally a slave of the Lord, commissioned to testify to the truth of the gospel. Now he's writing to what he calls the, the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. It, uh, that, that word dispersed literally means diaspora, right? It's the diaspora, the 12 tribes dispersed. Now that 12 tribes language, of course, that's a, a reference back to the 12 tribes of Israel. But James is writing to Christians, not Jews. You, you notice he identifies Jesus as not only the Christ, the Messiah, which the Jews were hoping would come, but he identifies him as Lord. In other words, Yahweh. God. This is what distinguishes Christians 
from Jews. It's our understanding that Jesus was not just a great teacher, not just someone who claimed to be the, the Christ, the Messiah. No, Jesus is God in the flesh. So he's, so he's writing to Christians who believe this about Jesus, but he lets us know right away, these, these Christians have been dispersed. They're, they're in exile, as it were. After the stoning of Stephen around 36 AD, we, we know that persecution broke out against the Christians who were in Jerusalem, and they were scattered. They were dispersed, kind of going all over the place. But a lot of them went north, way up into Syria. And then, and then a famine breaks out in that part of the world in the 40s, and it makes everything worse. So James is writing to Christians who are in distress. They're, they're starting new churches in new places. He's not writing to just one church. This seems to be a, a circular letter that's going to go to a lot of different places and people. So they're starting new churches in new places, but not for funsies, right? It's because they've been driven from their homes. They're, they're, they're refugees starting over. And James knows that in that kind of situation, the temptation might be to lay low, to, to avoid any more persecution, maybe even by compromising with the world around them. And so James starts off right away encouraging them, reminding them who they are, you are the 12 tribes. You are the fulfillment of God's promise that began all the way back with Abraham. And he wants to call them to prove that, to prove that they are the genuine article. So right away, James lays out his goal for them. Look at verse four, James chapter one, verse four. Let endurance have its full effect so that, so here's his purpose, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is James' goal for these Christians who are distressed, who are dispersed, who are struggling, who are undergoing all sorts of things. He wants them to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That is a big goal. That word mature. In, in the rest of the New Testament, it's usually translated perfect. I want you to be perfect. It, it's the word that, that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's a really interesting word. It's the word that we get our kind of scientific word telemetry from. Telemetry is the way you measure where something is heading. Like, like rocket scientists use this. People in, that, that, that track like spaceships use, use this word, right? It, it conveys the idea of something that's heading somewhere, trying to reach a goal. Fundamental to the Bible's understanding of what it means to be a human being is that you were made for a purpose. Your life has a goal, and it is on a trajectory that's either going to reach that goal or not. Now, now, that goal is not to make lots of money and be really comfortable in this life, according to the Bible. It's, it's, it's not simply to, to be happy, however you define happiness. 
It's not even what you might think it is. The goal of your life is not to make the world a better place, to like leave it better off than, than when you found it. That sounds really noble, but that is not the goal of your life according to the Bible. You know what the goal of your life is? The goal of your life is to be like God. That's the goal of your life. That's what God made you for. It, it's to be holy like he is holy. It's to be glorious like he is glorious. It is to be righteous like he is righteous. Now, now, why is that the goal of your life? Well, it's not so that you can replace God. It's so that you would be a reflection of God. This is really what it means to be made in the image of God. It is to be a, a picture, a reflection back to God of all of his beauty, of all of his glory. That's the purpose of your life, to reflect God back to him. That's a huge goal. And all of that is contained in this word, maturity. You know, this is a goal that we're only going to meet if we are in Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever met that goal. So, so here is James' argument. Here's what I want to convince you of, and that James wants to convince us of right here at the beginning, in light of that goal that we would be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Here's, here's the argument, and it's really the first characteristic of a genuine Christian. Maturity should be your goal. M maturity, Christian maturity should be your goal this year, and next year, and the year after that, as many years as the Lord gives you until the end. Now, how do we pursue that goal? Right, if, if, my, if my goal is to lose weight this year, I'll, I'll have some steps to do that. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut out chips. For me, it's always chips. Anything salty and savory, that's my downfall. So I, I'm just gonna have to cut that out. If I'm, you know, you gotta think about how am I gonna reach my goal? Well, if my goal is maturity in Christ, how am I gonna get there? James actually gives us three requirements, three, three things that we're gonna need if we're gonna, if we're gonna reach this goal. And the first is that maturity requires endurance. Maturity requires endurance. Let's, uh, let's pick it up in, in verse two, James chapter one, verse two. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. All right, so I've already mentioned these, these early Christians that he's writing to, and they are facing all sorts of trials. They're facing physical trials because they've had to move someplace new. They're, they're facing financial trials because, of course, they're having to start over. They're facing social trials because not only are they despised by their, 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 the Jews, kind of hate Christians at this point, but, but they're just in a new environment. They don't know anybody. And they're facing spiritual trials. Now, amid all of those trials, James says, 
that they should count the trials themselves a matter of great joy. You see that there in verse two, consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Now, just to be clear, he doesn't say only joy. He doesn't say in the midst of these trials, the only thing you should feel is joy. No, no, James is not a masochist, right? James, James understands that you're gonna feel all sorts of feels in the midst of trials. And most of those feelings are probably gonna be unpleasant. James isn't excluding those emotions. He's adding one. In addition to whatever else you feel, count it joy that you are going through this trial. Now, now why joy? Why, why should we be able to add joy to something that actually does not produce joy? Because nobody likes to go through trials of any kind. Well he, well, he tells us, he says, it's because trials mean their faith is being tested. You see that in verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He's, he's using the imagery of, of metallurgy, right? Of refining metal. Precious metals were, were tested. The, the idea is really they, they, were, they were proven. They were proven by applying heat. Only, only the genuine gold would, would survive the other side of the, of the heat, the, the trial of heat that was applied to, to, to the gold ore. And, and James is saying, look, this is what trials are doing to your faith. Tri- trials are bringing the heat to, to this faith that you claim that you have, and they're going to prove whether or not the faith that you claim is genuine. Because genuine faith, like genuine gold, survives the heat. Everything else gets burned off. I had a conversation this week with a, with a friend of mine. Hadn't seen him in a while. Was talking to him. And, and I, was, I was asking him about uh, where he was going to church now. And, and he said to me, yeah, I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere. I said, why? And he said to me, uh, because I, I don't believe anymore. I, I don't believe that I'm a Christian. I don't believe that Jesus is who you say he is. I said, why? And he went into a list of all of the trials that he and his family have been through. And they've been through a lot. Death, disease, unemployment, and then, and then he added on the, the hypocrisy that he sees in the church and bad examples. And, and I found myself listening to him, trying to ask questions, trying to show a lot of compassion, made some suggestions. But in, in the back of my mind, I realized, yeah, this is, this is what James is talking about. Trials come and they test the faith. They prove whether or not it was genuine. And in this particular friend's life, the trials came. And what they proved, at least so far, what, what those trials have proven is that the faith wasn't real. The faith wasn't genuine. Because it didn't survive the heat. 
And then, and then I thought in, in contrast about, about our sister Margie Lynn, who I prayed for earlier. Um, some of you, those that have been around Henson for, for a long time will, will know Margie, but a lot of you who, who are newer here in the life of the church, you've never even met Margie. Margie was here when I got here. I've never known Margie except in a wheelchair. She spent most of her life there because of uh, a childhood illness. And then not long after I got here, uh, Margie uh, went through some pretty serious trials of health and ended up having to have a tracheotomy and has never been able to, to come back to Henson because of the kind of care she now needs. And she spent the last decade uh, in, in very specialized care. And, and because of that, she was no longer able to live with her husband. And so spent the last decade of their marriage not, not even being able to be together. And just recently, her husband died. And even more recently, she's been diagnosed with cancer. A very painful kind of cancer. She's probably watching. But, but this, is, this is what she said to me when I reached out to her. She, she wrote me actually just this morning, or maybe it was last night. And she said, please pray that my faith and trust will increase. And so that's what we prayed this morning for her. Because this is what trials do. This is why God brings trials into our lives as believers. It is to prove the genuineness of our faith. Because faith, that is real faith, that is genuine faith, endures. And there's, there's no way you're going to know it endures unless it's tested, unless it's taken through trials. My youngest son recently explained his theory of adulting to me. You know, adulting, it's something that 20-somethings are considering taking up. Um, <laughs> well, well, he's about to get his learner's permit. And uh, so he's thinking about this. What does it, what does it mean to be an adult? And, he, and, and here, here's his theory. Adulting is when you realize that you don't want to do something and you get up and you do it anyway. That's adulting to him. You, there's, there's something that you need to do. There's something you're supposed to do. You don't want to do it. But because you're an adult, you get up and you do it anyway. Ah, it's not bad. I'm actually encouraged at that theory of adulting. Friends, it's the same with faith. It's the same with faith. Faith is not about how we feel in the midst of a trial. No, faith, real faith, genuine faith, recognizes that God calls me to trust him even when I don't want to, even when I don't feel like it. 
even when the heat is turned up really high and it trusts him anyway. Genuine faith finds its, its steel not in my feelings, but in his character. G- genuine faith understands that, that God is in control of my life. He's the one bringing these trials in. He's in control, and, and therefore trials are not proof of his neglect. Trials are not proof of his lack of love. Trials are not an excuse for me to stop believing. No, no, trials are, are the proof that he's strengthening me, that he's paying close attention to my life, that he wants me to be mature and complete. And the only way I get there is if he comes into my life kind of like a coach and takes me through a workout that I don't want to go through. I mean, I, 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 was a, I was a swimmer when I was younger and uh, I loved meets. I hated practices. You know why I hated practices? Because I had to swim so much more than I ever had to do in a meet. Because that's the only way you'll swim fast in the meet is if you can swim fast and long for a lot longer than you'll ever have to do in a meet. It strengthened me for what lay ahead. And this, this is what the Lord is doing. And this is what faith understands. That he's preparing us for the goal of heaven itself. Real faith endures. It perseveres. And this isn't just James. You know, we saw this in Daniel. Wasn't this the message of Daniel over and over again? About persevering to the end. We saw this in the book of Revelation. As, as, as John tried to encourage believers who were under all sorts of trials to endure, to persevere, to be a Christian, to reach maturity, we must endure, but endurance only comes through trials. It's not as something unusual was happening to you. And so we rejoice. Yeah, we also cry. And maybe sometimes we whine, but we rejoice because we know, as Paul says, that in our momentary light affliction, these are producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory when we will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Christian, do you need to change your perspective on your trials? I know I do constantly. My, my, my reflex, my, my first response is always, or almost always, like grumbling, complaining, really? Do I have to, you know? No, we, we, we need to come back to James chapter one and realize, oh, no, 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 no. Not really, but... Well, if not, yes, at least, yes. (laughs) The the Lord is refining me. He's brought this trial into my life to strengthen my faith, not to destroy it, 
to give me a chance to endure so that those faith muscles grow stronger so that I get to the end. Now, how do we endure? Well, that's really what the next two things are going to be about. We're, we need wisdom. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. We need perspective. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But let me talk about something at this moment that, that James is going to talk a lot about as we get into the book, but he didn't talk about it here at all. And that is we need each other if we're going to endure. Well, one of the things that's fascinating is, but, but before you get to the end of James chapter one, all of a sudden the book is all about relationships and particularly relationships in the church. James understands, even if he's not quite saying it yet, that if we're going to endure, we got we to gotta help each other through, through encouragement, through, through, through our words, through our example, through just coming alongside one another in love. Brothers and sisters, is there, is there someone that you know in this church that you could come alongside in love and help them endure this week? Maybe you're the one who needs that help. Are you letting people in? Are you pulling people into your life? Because this endurance thing, man, we're not going to do it on our own. If we're going to endure, we need to endure together. How can you be a part of that in somebody's life this week? Well, maturity requires endurance. But if we're to endure, we're going to need wisdom. So second, maturity also requires wisdom. Look at verse five. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. All right, so when, when it makes sense why he moves now to, to wisdom, right? Because whenever, whenever we face a trial, like almost always the, the, the first question that we're going to ask is, what do I do? In, in fact, this may be the first trial that James has in mind, the trial of wisdom, the daily trial of not knowing what to do, raising my kids, Navigating the workplace, constantly having to choose between less than ideal options every single day, over and over and over again. All of us are faced with questions that don't have an obvious right or wrong answer. But I'm just trying to figure out what's the least bad option or what's the better option to pursue amongst the things that I can see. Friends, that's, that's the realm of wisdom. Well, when we're faced with these questions, how do we respond? Do we, do we just sort of muddle through? Do we look to the world for advice? Or do we turn to God and ask him for wisdom? You know, you know wisdom isn't about being really smart. Wisdom is not knowing a lot. Wisdom is not about never making a mistake. Wisdom is about knowing how to live well in God's world. How to live well in a moral universe. 
a universe that God created and will hold to account someday. It means understanding the big picture, like what God is up to, kind of at the, at the, at the, at the big picture, cosmic level, and then knowing how to apply that to the small picture, the, the, the details of my life that I'm facing today, and knowing what should be done in light of that. And, and here's the thing, right? We all lack wisdom. He, J- James has just said, I, I want you to be sure and complete lacking nothing. Well, the first thing that comes to his mind that we lack, and the first thing that we're going to need if we're going to endure, is wisdom. Uh, when, when people ask me, how can I pray for you? Almost always, the first thing I say is, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom so I'll know how to lead this church. Pray for wisdom so I'll know how to lead my family. I feel the lack of wisdom all the time. And so James tells us to ask God for wisdom. James describes God there uh, in in verse 5 as both generous. He literally says God is the giving God. You, You know, we think about God is the loving God or the holy God or the righteous God. I think this might be the only place in the New Testament, but it's so true. God in his very nature is the giving God. We should go to him because he he loves to give. And not only does he love to give, but he's ungrudging in his giving. That that, that word there, there are different aspects to it. I mean, on the one hand, God is is single-minded in his desire to give his children wisdom. Have you ever met a parent who doesn't want to give their children good advice? No, parents love to give advice. Just ask any teenager in the room and they'll tell you. Well, well, here's the thing. God is no different. God loves to give to his children, to give wisdom, to give counsel to his children, except unlike you and me, uh, his counsel is always perfect. His advice is always right. And what's more, he's not up there saying to us, you dummy, you should have known this. Why am I having to tell you? You should have already figured this out. No, that is not his attitude. He's, he's ungrudging. He, he doesn't find fault. He, he doesn't criticize when we go to him and admit, I don't know what to do. I need wisdom. He's eager to make us wise. But, but, but here's, here's the thing. We need to ask for wisdom. He doesn't force his wisdom on us. We need to ask for it. Now, like quick aside, parents, we could learn a lot from that verse right there, right? That, that, that we need to ask. Our teenagers in particular are always coming to us and they're talking about stuff. And I almost always hear my kids when they're talking to me about some problem in their life, I almost always hear them asking for advice. What I'm learning is that is rarely actually what they're asking for. And when I try to give something that they're not asking for, they don't receive it very well. In that, they're a lot like me. I don't, I don't receive things well when somebody gives me something I'm not asking for, right? Um, uh, we, we need, as parents, to get better at being like God here and, and understanding when my teenager is talking to me about something or my young adult is talking to me about something, do they just maybe want to be heard? 
Or, or maybe actually what they want is to be hugged and supported. Probably third on the list is they're actually asking to be helped. They, they, they're asking for the advice. I always assume that all three are helped, helped, helped. They just want help, right? Mm, I think we as parents would make a lot more progress with our kids if we kept those categories in mind. Does my kid want to be heard? Does he want to be hugged? Does he want to be helped? And we acted a little bit more like God here. Wait for them to ask. Well, we need to ask. And James tells us that when we ask, we need to ask in faith without doubting. Do you see that there in verse 6? But let him ask in faith without doubting. Well, that's kind of discouraging for me anyway. Until I realize that James has a very specific kind of doubt in mind here. When I think of doubt, I think of the man in Mark chapter 9 whose son was possessed by an evil spirit and the disciples couldn't, throw the, could, couldn't uh, remove the evil spirit. Jesus comes down from the mountain after the transfiguration and the, the man comes to Jesus and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus in Mark chapter nine takes great exception to the word if. If? If I can do anything? And, and the man quickly kind of clarifies it, and he replies, I do believe, help my unbelief, help my doubt. When I think of doubt, that's what I'm thinking of. Maybe that's what you think of. The kind of doubt that the man in Mark 9 was experiencing. And, and here's the thing, faith lives in the presence of that kind of doubt. Faith is always in the presence of that kind of doubt. Will God answer my prayer? Will he love me? Will he leave me? Faith deals with this sort of doubt and overcomes it. That's not the doubt that James is talking about here. The kind of doubt that James is talking about when he says, but he must ask without doubting, is the doubt of not actually knowing what you want kind of of two minds inside of yourself, disputing with yourself. He describes it actually there in verse eight as being double-minded. And he compares it by way of illustration in verse seven to the, to the surging sea, unstable, driven by the wind. When, when he uses that image, he doesn't, he doesn't have in mind the waves that are rolling into the shore that are kind of always rolling in that one direction, steady and constant. No, he's thinking about the open ocean where every time the wind shifts, the movement of the waves changes and everything is unstable. If we're going to be mature and if we're going to endure through trials, we have to know without doubt what we need, that we need God's wisdom and ask for it. You know, the man in Mark 9, he had doubts about whether Jesus would help him but he had no doubt about what he needed from Jesus. He needed Jesus' help. 
This is what it means to be a mature Christian. Not that you never have doubts like the man in Mark 9 had, but that you are single-minded, single-hearted in your desire to know Jesus and to be like him and to receive from him the wisdom that he offers. We cannot play both sides of the street with God. We we cannot ask for wisdom, but then not be entirely sure we want to live by the wisdom that he's going to give. And we do this all the time. We, We pray for wisdom about how to pursue sexual purity in our lives, particularly our online lives, then we're not so sure we want to put internet filters on our phones or our computers. Because, you know, that would kind of get in the way. Or or we we pray for for wisdom about what sort of job to pursue. Should Should I take this job offer or that job offer? Should I go back to school to pursue this kind of job or that kind of job? We pray for wisdom about our career. But we know deep down that we actually haven't made up our minds about whether or not we want to use our money the way God says we should use our money. We're not not sure that we want to pursue his priorities in the workplace rather than a different set of priorities. Or or we we ask God for, for wisdom about raising our kids. But then... Actually, like what we really want is we just want good behavior. And I'll just take whatever will make them behave. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't answer those prayers. Those are double-minded prayers. Those are asking for something not really sure that I want or even need what God's going to give. I kind of want something else. Faith knows that it needs God's wisdom. Maybe it's tried other ways. And it's realized that those are all dead ends. Faith knows it needs God's wisdom. There is no doubt Faith, genuine faith, wants God and God's ways, no matter what. And that is a prayer that God will answer. So Christian, if you've been praying about something, maybe it's a besetting sin, maybe it's an issue in your family or at work, and you just don't feel like God's answering the prayer, maybe... The issue is you need to go back and consider your heart and consider whether or not you're prepared to obey the wisdom that God promises to give. Now, if if you're not a Christian, what, what I want you to understand more than anything else is that the wisdom that you need from God first is the wisdom of the gospel. Because it's in the gospel that God proves himself to be this this generous and and ungrudging God that James describes here. Friend, your your greatest need is to be right with God. 
And the reason that's your greatest need is your sin has caused you to be in the wrong with God. And you can't solve that on, yourself, on, on your own. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that in his generosity, in his ungrudging single-mindedness, God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to stand in your place, to, to bear your sin, to, to die your death, so that you might be reconciled with God, so that you who are in the wrong with God could be put right with God. Paul calls this wisdom, what God did in and through Jesus Christ, the wisdom of the cross. And he proved its wisdom by raising Jesus from the dead. And now God calls you to, to repent of your double-mindedness, to, to turn away from, from wanting these other things and instead to, to, to believe, to not doubt God's love for you. You know, faith, this, this kind of belief that I'm talking about here, it's, it's not about extinguishing your intellect. It's not turning your brain off. It's, 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 it's also not about having answers to every question that you might have. It's also not, not caring about those answers anymore. No, faith is quite simply the single-minded conviction that you need a Savior because you need to be put right with God. And that God gave Jesus so that you could be right with God as you put your faith in him. The only way that any of us ever reach that goal of being like God is by starting right here and first being in Christ by faith. I'd love to talk to you more about that. So please come find me afterwards. But know that today is the day that all of the wisdom of God could flood into your life and change it. If you want that wisdom, all you need to do is ask. Maturity requires endurance. And if we're going to endure, we need wisdom. Third and finally, maturity requires perspective. Maturity requires perspective. Look at verse nine. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes in the same way the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. It, it, it's so easy to take our cues from our circumstances, to, to, to evaluate our lives a, a, according to kind of worldly terms. But friends, the mature Christian doesn't do that. The mature Christian considers his circumstances in light of the gospel, in light of Jesus Christ. James gives us two examples here. Some that he's writing to are in humble circumstances there in verse nine. That is, they're, they're in poverty. And, and of course, that, that makes sense. They were essentially refugees. They had lost everything. They were having to start up all over again. 
But that's not everybody he's writing to. Some were just the opposite. They were at least comparatively rich. You see that there in verse 10. Maybe they were business people. Maybe they, they, weren't, they weren't farmers, but they were the kind of people that wherever they went, they could just set up their trade and, and go to work. And so they had means. Well, in both cases, James says they should boast, but their boast should be in the gospel. Through the gospel, James says, look, the, the, you who are poor, who, you who, who feel ashamed in this world, oh no, you need to boast in your exaltation. What exaltation? Well, the exaltation that they have because they are now children of God, according to John in John chapter one. They are actually seated with Christ in heavenly places, according to Paul in Colossians chapter three. They are priests and kings in the kingdom of heaven, according to John in Revelations chapter five. Actually, because of Christ, their whole condition is changed, even though you can't see it by the clothes that they wear. They can boast in their exaltation. They, they aren't consumed by their humble circumstances because they know that their identity is in Christ. By that very same gospel, James says to the rich, yeah, you, you guys have every reason to boast, right? You could boast in your success. You could boast in your accomplishments. You could boast in your wealth. But actually, you should boast in your humiliation. He says that there in verse 10. Why would the rich be humiliated? Well, if they're in Christ, it's because they have identified with a humiliated and crucified Savior. The most important thing about them now is not the external circumstances of their lives, but the fact that they are known as Christians, little Christs. They are known as followers of a man who was despised and rejected and thought of as nothing by the great and powerful of this world. With Paul, as he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1, we saw, we saw this last year, their boast is in the Lord. The rich believer, he goes on to say, look, the rich believer knows that all of his riches there, verse 11, they're, they're, they're going to wither away. J James compares the, the, the circumstances of their wealth to, to wildflowers in the field. Many of you like to go hiking. I love going hiking up in the, in the gorge. And yet, because I don't like mud, I always go hiking in August. And therefore, I miss the glory that is hiking in the gorge in like June. When all the flowers are in full bloom in May and June. It's cold and rainy, but oh, the glory of those flowers. But just two months later, they're all gone and I never see them. I just read about them. Friends, so it will be with our lives. Even as we pursue the world's glory, our life will come to an end. And what will we have to boast about then? The mature Christian knows that the circumstances of this life, rich or poor, plenty or want, will not matter on that day. What will matter 
It's whether we are found mature and complete, lacking nothing in Christ. And so our perspective today is rooted in our hope for that day, the last day. And so we keep it all in perspective. Which brings us back to where we started. When we think about our resolutions, when we think about the way we want to grow this year, really what we're talking about is what do I want to accomplish? What am I hoping I could boast about by the end of this year? Friend, are you boasting or hoping to boast in things that are just going to pass away? Conversely, are you, are you feeling discouraged and ashamed because of things that are just going to pass away? Christian maturity requires perspective, a heavenly perspective that's produced by the gospel. And so I just want to close by speaking to the members of this church, Henson Baptist Church, as your pastor. More than anything else, what I want for you this year is that your goal would be maturity. This would be what you set your mind and your heart toward this year and every year to come, as long and as many years as the Lord gives you. Fix your eyes on the end. Don't don't lose sight of what actually really matters, which is that last day when you want to be found mature and complete, lacking nothing. Fix your eyes there and so boast today in your Savior. When the world looks down on you because of what you believe, because how you live, when, when it looks down on you because of how little you seem to have accomplished in this world's eyes, remember that your father was pleased to give you the kingdom in Jesus Christ, and you already possess it. Boast in your exaltation. When, when, when you're tempted to think quite highly of yourself, to be very encouraged by your accomplishments, maybe to believe what other people are telling you about how wonderful you are. Don't believe it. Remember that your life is a vapor and that your only hope for glory is to be found in Christ, the despised and rejected one. Now boast in your humiliation in Christ. Rich or poor, successful or unsuccessful, recognized or unrecognized, appreciated or unappreciated. Boast in Jesus. And then ask him for wisdom, a wisdom that you mean to live by so that you don't give up. That's my goal for you this year. That you would more and more this year know what it means to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Because you found that everything you need, you've already found in him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, so often our minds and hearts are distracted by lesser goals, goals that are unworthy of who you made us to be. Minds and hearts are dissuaded 
from pursuing you with a single-minded love. Because we have been distracted by the baubles of this world, by things that are just going to pass away. Lord, we pray that you, by your grace, would set our hearts on Jesus. That, that we would count it our, our highest joy and our, our greatest glory to be increasingly conformed to the image of our Savior in this life. Whether that means trials and sufferings or, or, or whether that means joys and an evident progress, Lord, may our minds, may our hearts be not double-minded, but wholeheartedly, single-mindedly set on you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.